0: Welcome to Beyond Politics and a crossover episode of Great Ideas, broadcast on WKXL Radio and available wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Matt Robeson. We're recording this on Thursday, May 26th, and like many people, I'm still reeling from the mass shooting in Texas that killed 19 children and two adults and injured many others. I live in New England. Several times a year, I drive to New York City, and my route takes me past Newtown, Connecticut. It takes me past the Sandy Hook Elementary School where on December 14th, 2012, six adults and 20 children were killed in another mass shooting. That's always a dangerous drive for me because inevitably when I see the exit sign and the word Sandy Hook, I tear up and it's hard to keep focus on the road. I'm the father of three young children, one who's in kindergarten, Like the victims in Connecticut, one who's in fifth grade, like some of the victims in Texas. I was reading an article in the Washington Post about parents like me, who are, in the words of the author, raw with anger and despair and hopelessness. One father in Orlando spent part of his Tuesday researching bulletproof gear for his kindergartners. He told the Post that as a parent, you feel helpless. You feel like, You and your children are at the mercy of whatever happens out there, and we have no control over it. And it's that feeling of hopelessness and despair that I want to talk about on the show today, because what feeds our hopelessness as much as anything is the fact that we were here 10 years ago after Sandy Hook. We were here 10 years before that, after Columbine, and we're here again. And in between, there have been more deadly attacks, more violence, and more death than any of us want to keep track of. And we know all of this. And yet it seems like at the federal level, there is no prospect of doing even the slightest thing, which is why an article caught my eye this morning titled, What Counties and Cities Can Do to Curb Gun Violence in Texas. One of the authors of that article, Alex Barrio, Is the director for advocacy for gun violence prevention at the Center for American Progress. And what really struck me about that article is that it was full of ideas, ideas for practical and most of all, achievable things. These are things that government can do on a more localized level to cut back, not eliminate, but at least reduce some of this misery and death. And and what we look for on the Great Ideas Program is Great Ideas, Practical Innovations for Fixing Problems in America. And what we look for on the Beyond Politics program is to dive deeper beyond the day-to-day headlines and go beyond politics. So that's why I wanted to do this show and put it in both podcasts and broadcast it on WKXL, because I think people need some great ideas right now. And I think we need to go beyond headlines and go beyond the politics of this right now. I know that I certainly do. And that's why I really appreciate having you with us here today, Alex.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much for having me.
0: I, I do appreciate it because I, I do think this is what I need. I think this is what I need to, to hear and talk about. I, I'm I'm sort of out of words and out of emotional reactions, like many people I know, to characterize what happened in Texas and what happens to us over and over again what i need to hear is what are we going to do about it so you let's set the stage here just to understand the context for your article and your set of practical ideas for action steps you start off by running through some of the statistics about texas particularly maybe you could just tell us a little bit more about the situation when it comes to shootings and gun violence in Texas? Uh,
1: absolutely. So, you know, the root and the origin of this article, which we've been working on for a few months, was to assess the situation in Texas and look at ways in which Texans can fight for gun violence prevention policy. We worked with our state partner, Texas Gun Sense, um, to do this. Texas in 2021 passed a series of gun laws to loosen restrictions on guns, including permitless carry whereby people like the shooter the other day can purchase any gun that they want at the age of 18 without any training or permitting requirements, without any license requirements. The CDC now recently updated their data up through 2020, looking at gun deaths. And we saw that Texas, when they did that, had a dramatic increase or had very high numbers of gun deaths. In 2020, there were 1,785 firearm homicides Black Texans accounted for 787, which are 44% of those firearm deaths, despite accounting for only 12.9% of the population. And so we have a huge number of gun homicides and disproportionate impact on Black and Latino men. In order to really address this disproportionate impact, we believe it's important to understand all the factors that contribute to gun violence at the community level and work with local people in their communities to begin to address these. And so we created this list what counties and cities can do to curb gun violence in Texas. All the things that we list, however, are not limited to Texas. You can do this in any state, regardless of Democrat or Republican control of their legislature, regardless of how dedicated your elected officials are to reducing gun violence.
0: That does bring in a comparison that i was hoping to get to which is how does the texas situation compare to the national situation what what's the context here for the level of gun violence and 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 homicide and and uh, destruction wrought by firearms in america compared to texas
1: so Texas, it has one of the worst gun death rates in the entire country. They also have one of the worst um, gun death, uh, sorry, one of the worst, you know, legislative regimes to control weapons and the sales of guns in the entire country. So we see states with looser gun laws generally have much higher death rates, and Texas is not an outlier in that. It is one of many states in this country that have extremely loose gun laws, and as a result, have extremely high gun death rates. Yeah.
0: What, when you mention uh, Texas and their, and their gun laws, how do those laws compare to the legal situation and, and the level of um, gun safety law, gun, gun safety restriction that exists in, in other states?
1: So I think it's a good thing to look at um, the states that have some of the strongest gun laws, right? So we look at states like New Jersey, Connecticut, Massachusetts. These states require permitting and licensing before you purchase a weapon. Texas, as we know, does not require that anymore. Indeed, 25 states right now require no permitting or licensing before purchasing a gun. Um, As a result, the states that have the toughest gun laws, which essentially the states that put in some sort of small barrier, right? Having to go get a license, having to do a safety training course, um, does not in itself violate the second amendment, but it does put in extra steps, right? And it reduces the potential for actions um, that are impulsive, right? For impulsive shootings, uh, which we see have disproportionately increased over the past few years as more and more Guns have flooded into our streets. More and more guns have been sold. So, those states—I mean, we're talking about—and just to point the specific numbers, in Connecticut, the number of gun—the gun death rate per one hundred thousand is a little over five, so about five and a half per one hundred thousand. In Texas, that number is a, a 14, 14 per one hundred thousand.
0: Mm. And as we go three to times states, higher.
1: Yes. And as we go to the states with the loosest gun laws and the, and the highest rates of gun deaths, we're looking at Mississippi, where you're looking at 28 and a half per 100,000, six times wow. worse than Connecticut. Wow. Uh, Hawaii is the lowest with three, um, which shouldn't be surprising. They, uh, it's not a place where it's very easy to traffic guns. And it's not a place where it's easy to purchase guns. They're down at three and a half per 100,000 compared to Mississippi, which is almost at 30, over nine times worse. And so as we've seen with these states, the looser the gun laws are, the more people are losing their lives. And now we have a situation where children are disproportionately impacted. And as of last year, gun deaths are now the number one cause of death for children between the age of one and 19, surpassing car accidents.
0: Gun deaths are the number one cause of death for children under the age of 19.
1: Yeah. In the year 2020. That's right.
0: That is, that is astounding. Just to put a finer point or to add to the point you were making my old friend, Cliff Schechter, previous guest on this show, a longtime advocate um, who literally wrote the book on the NRA. He, he, um Literally, he's he's worked with many of the gun violence prevention campaigns, the Brady Center, and et cetera. Uh, sent a tweet yesterday. About two hundred thousand people have liked it, and his tweet says, "As a reminder, we have zero proof. Zero gun laws work. You know, if you don't include Japan, UK, Belgium, Canada, Iceland, Romania, Norway, Austria, Argentina, Netherlands, South Korea." Italy, Greece, Chile, France, Spain, Sweden, Singapore, Portugal, Israel, Czechoslovakia, Denmark, Taiwan, Switzerland, Poland, Germany, Luxembourg, Malta, Australia, Estonia, Croatia, New Zealand, Ireland, Slovakia, Latvia, Slovenia, San Marino, Andorra, Monaco, Lithuania. Ignore all those obviously not applicable examples. How do we ever figure out this complex puzzle? So it sounds to me like you have similar evidence in the numbers that you just cited. Make no mistake, it's case closed. Gun laws, gun safety laws work. They reduce death, they reduce violence, and you can do them in a way that does not violate the Second Amendment.
1: Absolutely. Even in the United States, where it is very easy to traffic guns, and we have a huge problem of gun trafficking, of moving guns from states with loose gun laws to states with harsher gun laws, even in that scenario, states with harsher, stronger gun laws, which essentially just mean you can't buy assault weapons, and you know, which is what Connecticut, Rhode Island, New Jersey have, and that there are licensing and permitting requirements to slow down the process, not to stop it. Your second amendment right is still guaranteed. Um, we still see dramatic changes and in a place like New York, where yes, the shooter was still able to buy an assault weapon at the age of 18, despite his history, 80% of guns, it is estimated, um, that are used in homicides in New York come from out of state. Hmm. You know, the numbers are horrendous. In Chicago, it's estimated to be about six out of seven guns used in homicides come from out of states. Wisconsin, Indiana, Missouri, states that themselves have very, very high gun death rates.
0: Right, which goes to the point that we're all in this together. And we've heard a lot of that during the pandemic, that we're all interconnected in this, but the the, the impact of we're only as strong as the weakest link in the chain. And so when we think about actions that individual states can take, make no mistake, if a state with terrible gun laws improves the strength of their gun laws, it could make your school safer in a neighboring state. It could make it could make your school safer in a state that's far away. And I mean, look no further. I'm not trying to suggest that a specific set of laws, it's, it's early still. I'm not trying to suggest that a specific set of laws would have prevented Rolando Ramos, from murdering 19 children two days ago. But when you look at the sequence of what happened here, it does suggest that common sense restrictions to, as you say, slow things down might have worked here. He went and bought a semi-automatic rifle and automated, you know, Rapid-fire rifles are usually the weapon in in these mass shootings, the kind of thing that we try to regulate, try and slow down, who gets a hold of these things. He went in, purchased a semi-automatic rifle at a local gun store on May 17th. He then goes back the next day and buys 375 rounds of ammunition. Why you need 375 rounds of ammunition if you have a legitimate use for that firearm is beyond me he then goes back to the same gun store the next day and purchases a second semi-automatic rifle this is someone with a documented history of a, a violent lashing out against peers and strangers so you can start to see how any number of common sense restrictions in place in other places could have been effective here. And if there's, any, if there's any element of hope to offer, it's that these kinds of things could work. They could work and they're doable. We know they're doable because they're being done in other places with that let me just ask one other question uh before we get into your set of specific changes that that counties and and states and localities can make you point out early in your article that texas and you you mentioned this a moment ago that that texas has adopted some truly terrible gun related measures in september of 2021 the state passed a bill allowing residents to carry handguns in public spaces without a permit, despite majority opposition from, from Texas voters. And you, ha- you present study evidence that I, I'd, I'd like you to bring to our listeners that this creates additional danger. Is, is that right?
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. When you insert guns into communities, especially despite opposition from most Texan voters, which is what happened in 2021, you're increasing the dangerousness. I mean, we have seen in the past year, dramatic increases in interpersonal violence, including domestic violence, homicide, road rage, incidents, homicide, neighbor against neighbor, on top of the mass shootings, on top of the school shootings, like the mass shootings get all the attention, right? But it's always pointed out they are a very small number of shootings, which is true, a very small number of the overall victims. When we're talking about in 2020 approximately 20,000 homicide, gun homicide victims, mass shootings were a small proportion. The rest of that is the regular interpersonal violence where people who are armed, whereas in the past, look, conflict's going to happen and it happens in other countries, but they're settled differently. They're ideally settled with words, sometimes with fists. In this country, People are settling their disputes with guns and getting away with it in a lot of situations because of stand your ground laws that protect killers. The situation, and just to note stand your ground, the situation's gotten so bad that we now have a situation in Iowa where an individual is claiming stand your ground after shooting a police officer. Wow. And so that escalation and the ability of guns to escalate situations is, I mean, truly terrifying for many of our people and it's what is the fear that people have every day right now you know when you're walking around living your normal life going to the grocery store going to the mall that's the true danger it's not necessarily a mass shooter but it's cutting someone in line and them deciding that today's the day
0: Mm. well and you cite in your article the fact that a 2017 study found that states that weaken their gun permitting systems saw an 11% increase in gun homicides. I mean, it's it's such a straight line cause and effect. Really not hard. You you also show uh, another study carrying guns in public is associated with higher levels of gun theft. This isn't that hard. You make it easier for people to get guns in their hands or easier to steal them and you see a lot more death. So the take home for me from that was, look, even if you're not in a place, a locality or a state where you're imminently going to pass any of the common sense measures that you outline in this report, the first step is you can can stop things from getting worse. If there are ideas out there to do similar things like weaken gun permitting or allowing more public carry, which, which is associated with theft, you can stand against that. And even that, will improve the situation. And so there are steps that, that we can take on the state level, on the county level, and the local level. Let's get into some of those right now. The, the first one that you highlight in your report is to actually address gun violence with the, the, the racial aspect in mind, because you point out that every community has, has a different relationship with gun violence. It, it has disproportionate impact. And so you need to have tailored solutions and a tailored understanding of the root causes of violence.
1: Absolutely, every single community is different and the causes of violence can be different. We do know there are some universal themes, right? Poverty is a huge driver of gun violence, lack of economic opportunity, high incidence of drug use, Those things can lead to gun violence and of course, high incidence of gun ownership, right? Among your community. There are certain things that as a community, especially a community dealing with trauma can do to reduce the long-term daily interpersonal violence that our nation deals with. There are programs such as investing in number one, affordable housing, find that communities with high, high ownership and affordable housing have much lower incidence of gun violence Because people are more invested in their community, they're more connected. Communities that are growing economically, that have strong economic investments, grow. And the communities with economic investments that are targeted, okay, there are communities, especially in Texas, Houston, they are targeting economic investments, they are targeting community investments to the exact, not just zip code, but blocks, the blocks where the gun violence is happening the most. And so, focusing on those neighborhoods and those communities and working with the people there to develop them economically, give them more educational opportunities, building out green space, replacing all the streetlights. They found in what is called environmental design, but basically redesigning the environment in which communities live in leads to huge drops in gun violence. Uh, And then of course, investing in community violence intervention programs, CVI programs, which President Biden has invested hundreds of millions of dollars in now through the American Rescue Plan, hire people from communities to mediate disputes without law enforcement, without guns. They connect with people who are dealing with personal issues and make sure that one, there is no escalation. And in the event of a shooting, they talk to the survivors and make sure that there is no retaliation, right? They work ultimately with the police as well to bring perpetrators to justice without leading to the spiral of violence or the cycle of violence that many communities are dealing with. And we've seen huge success with them. Those programs in St. Louis, in Boston, all over Connecticut, New Jersey. Um, And now there's pilot programs happening in Jacksonville, Florida. Of course, Houston, as I mentioned, but Dallas and Austin as well. Albuquerque, all over the country in California. They've been doing it for years, and there's really the models there, and you've seen gun violence drop in some communities by two-thirds.
0: That's absolutely amazing, and I, I, I just want to, for anyone who thinks in hearing at the, at the top of this list, well, we have to understand root causes and says, okay, but tell me how we're going to get rid of the guns. One of the things that came through to me in your report is this really is an all of the above approach, and what you're pointing to is the bottom line here, which is you care about less gun violence, and so yes, of course, we want fewer guns out there. We've talked about that already, but these other measures work. You have the data, you, you know. You you brought the receipts on this. I mean, even that you you made a reference. It's so easy to dismiss these things as kind of like. Touchy feel what, what what would Sarah Palin call it? Hopey changey stuff. Like, oh, more green spaces. No, more green spaces, well-maintained green spaces in communities. This has been studied, and, and there's there's a very clear statistical correlation, and it in, in that it decreases violence and gun violence in those communities. It's a study from 2019. You cited in your report, you can look it up. And a number like two-thirds, a two-thirds reduction in gun violence is huge against a backdrop. Of an overall spike in gun violence that we've been seeing mm-hmm. over the last two years. So this is me just running a little ad for the point that you're making in the in the middle of you making it. This stuff struck me as very real. It may not, it may not be the direct approach of we are reducing the number of guns, but there are other things that we can do that reduce gun violence. One of those other things that that you note in your report that again, at first blush doesn't sound as direct, but you show is effective, is improving data collection and reporting. That really sounds like it's far afield. Why does that work?
1: So what data, and just so everybody knows, there is no real, they're small, the CDC collects some data, the FBI collects some data, but it's not at the detail that we need to really address the root causes and sources of gun violence. And so we encourage our state and local advocates, reach out to your police, reach out to your mayor's office, ask them to really start keeping track of homicide shootings, non-fatal shootings, which make up two thirds of all shootings. Two thirds of people that are shot in this country survive. We talk a lot about homicides, we talk a lot about suicides, but remember for the 45,000 people who died in 2020 from guns, there are triple that amount, over 150,000 survivors who are living with the scars every single day in this country. Collecting that data, what that data does is it allow you to find out who are the perpetrators of gun violence, where are the neighborhoods where this gun violence is happening, and that data will then help local policymakers and advocates push for the solutions needed. Maybe it is more green spaces and recreational programs for youth because the gun violence is being driven by youth. Maybe it's more drug treatment programs because the gun violence is being driven by, the, um, by drug use. And, you know, organized crime around um, the drug trafficking in the drug market, maybe it's something else entirely, that data will allow you to find the right solution for your community to reduce gun violence and save lives.
0: When you mentioned a moment ago that in 2020, guns were the number one cause of, of death in children, one of the things besides horror that stood out to me about that is the fact that we tend to think about gun violence in terms of these horrific mass shooting incidents especially at schools but gun violence and the, the the death and and injury that we're seeing in this country is is much more widespread it's not it's not just those types of incidents and one of the things you point to in your report is that we need to do a better job at protecting and supporting people who have gone through a domestic violence situation, because guns are the ingredient that that really take domestic violence to to a whole other plane. Uh, and so, what do you mean by that? How, what's that intersection between domestic violence and 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 stricter gun laws, and how how do those go together to reduce? Violence and destruction from guns.
1: So we know for a fact, based on the history of the mass shooters, that domestic violence is a huge warning sign, right? Abuse of women in the family. And we specifically, in the shoot in the Texas situation, we had somebody who had been reportedly fighting with his mom over the years to the point where he was kicked out of that house, sent to his grandmother's, and was also having fights with his grandmother, right? We think a lot of domestic violence as only intimate partner violence, but it's really any violence occurring in a family situation, a situation where you should have trust. And so we know that none of these things happen in a vacuum. All these shooters, all these people who perpetrate these crimes have these histories. And so knowing who they are, one, and number two, making sure that people with that history can't buy guns is incredibly, incredibly important. Right now, we have a situation where if you are an intimate partner, um, but not married, and you get a restraining order in most states, including Texas. If you're not married, that restraining order does not prohibit that person from then acquiring a the gun. Wow. Uh, you know, and there have been efforts, especially this year with the Violence Against Women Act reauthorization, to try to address that boyfriend loophole. But unfortunately, um, that attempt failed, and so the boyfriend loophole, as it's known, still exists. Of course, that doesn't address other sort other kinds of family violence, but it is a warning, and we know in Texas. Specifically, 61% of women killed by an intimate partner are killed with a gun. Firearm surrender protocols. And the whole point of all this is because when you have a restraining order related to domestic violence, that person who has a restraining order against them has to surrender their firearms. Implementing those through um, domestic violence training orders or extreme risk protection orders is so, so, so crucial because it allows family members to say this person is a danger to themselves. They're a danger to me. We need to get these guns out of the house. They need to get mental health counseling and then they can go to court and petition to get their guns back. But in the meantime, from anywhere from one to three years, they will be barred from purchasing guns. That is the true importance. Domestic violence is a warning sign. And if we act and enforce domestic violence restraining orders, we will be able to take guns out of people's hands and prevent them from engaging in escalatory violence
0: one of the things you point out in your report is that in the last year or so a lot of our political focus in america has turned to school boards on a whole range of other issues but you say that school boards can also be a a central place to accomplish some things when it comes to preventing gun violence What do you mean by that? What what role can school boards and schools play?
1: Uh, School boards, first, cannot enact gun violence prevention policy, right? They can't forbid people from carrying guns or purchasing guns. But what they can do is educate and inform. Every year, hundreds of kids die because of unintentional shootings. They find a gun in their home that is not protected, it is not safely stored and they end up hurting themselves or hurting a friend or a neighbor or a relative. And so number one, we encourage all school boards to send letters home with information about safe storage, reminding parents of the dangers of leaving their guns not stored safely. Reminding parents when you lock your gun up, lock the ammunition separately so that those children do not get access to those weapons to harm themselves or others. They have the ability to educate any students and they also have the ability to share um, safe storage resolutions, You know, making sure that school districts make safe storage and uh, something that is shared and spread and spoken about in school, right? Secondly, we hear a lot about mental health. Mental health is incredibly important. Um, School boards have the ability, because they fund schools through the school districts to make sure that every school has a mental health council. Right now, we do not have that in our country. And as a matter of fact, last year, Governor Abbott cut $200 million in the state's mental health budget, forcing cuts across school boards, community hospitals, community health centers all over the country, all over the state of Texas, rather. School boards should work with their local hospitals, mental health treatment facilities, bring counselors and have those counselors talk to the kids who are just exhibiting behavioral issues and work with them. Therapy is expensive. You know, we're talking about if you are uninsured, maybe over $100 a week, most people in the country can't afford that. And sometimes your insurance doesn't even cover it. And so our school boards should work to make sure that every single school, every single one hires a mental health counselor that can work with every single student in that facility to stop these problems before they start, to resolve conflicts, to address domestic violence. As we know, teenagers believe it's, we cited it, it's one out of 11 teenagers report some sort of violence in their relationship. And so working to resolve those issues, stop the problems before they start, before they get escalated.
0: I think what this points out is that we can't just rely on all of these solutions to come from home. And the schools do have a role to play and look, We have gone through two years, two and a half years of a pandemic where it's really brought to light how much we rely on schools for a lot of social policy. We rely on our schools to feed and sometimes clothe and take care of our kids. They're they're sort of community resources in a lot of ways. And now we're saying, well, now you've got to provide the mental health for our kids as well. But that is the reality. And the situation with a shooter in Texas points that out because clearly that was a, a domestic violence situation that was not going to get addressed from the home angle. And we've also had the recent case where there are parents who are being sued in civil court for negligence, for not overseeing their, 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 their the, the shooter um, in that case, not, not uh, appropriately locking up the gun and restricting access to the gun. So these solutions don't always come from home. Speaking of, I I know one of your items, and you just addressed this, and I just referred to it, um, is safe storage of firearms at home. You alluded to it a moment ago. Anything else you want to point to on that? um, Because that is one of the major items in your report.
1: So that is something that states have passed and implemented all over the country, Colorado, Connecticut, California. There's a federal safe storage law called Ethan's Law, um, which is The the parents have been advocating for that. Their son Ethan was at a friend's house, he found a gun, it went off and he lost his life and they lost their son and the parents, um, especially their mother Kristen Song has been a strong advocate on the Hill to try to get this done. Um, But yeah, we need to require safe storage of weapons. And if people are reckless, okay, right now we have a system where there are no insurance requirements and there are no liability In most states and across the country generally for people who are reckless with their guns. The fact is if you leave your gun unlocked and someone is killed because of it and you're you're an irresponsible gun owner and you should face penalties for irresponsibility, if you hand your keys to someone that you know is drunk and they commit, uh, you know, they hit somebody or they ram into a house, you're liable for that. The same thing should happen with a gun with recklessness and so I encourage everybody if you own a gun please lock it up even if you don't have kids in your house lock it up because you never know someone can break into your house someone and take that gun and then use it and someone will die because you were irresponsible with that gun and that's on you so think about the consequence of your actions and in cars we ask people please do not carry guns in cars we have seen a surge in gun deaths and it aligns with the increase in gun sales so since 2020 the past two years We've seen a surge of gun sales, particularly first time gun owners since COVID started buying guns. With that, almost, co- almost connected, we've seen a surge in gun thefts, people reporting guns being stolen out of their cars. And so making sure that you do not keep your gun in your car because people will get in there. They will steal your gun safe. They will break the glove compartment. We see it all the time. The police are dealing with it on a constant basis. And those guns are being used in crimes. A stolen gun is not a gun that is used for someone's hobby hunting. They're gonna use that gun to rob somebody or hurt somebody.
0: Right, right. And I think the the word that you bring in there is responsibility. And if you have a firearm, you are responsible for making sure that it is not used in the commission of a crime, that it is not stolen, that it is not misused in any way, um, and that kids don't get access to it. And look, we've just seen a civil settlement in the Sandy Hook case against Remington, the maker of the firearm used in that school shooting for their negligence, for their lack of responsibility in the way they marketed that firearm. The idea of responsibility, if if, if at the federal level, the government is going to absolutely refuse, if they're going to, 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 to take the responsibility here and... To take an extremist view of what the Second Amendment holds, then the responsibility does shift, as you say in your report, to states and localities and counties, and it also shifts to some degree to all of us who have a stake in this. That includes you, gun manufacturers. That's what that civil suit said, and it also includes people who, you know, we throw around the the the, the phrase "responsible gun owners." Okay. Well, if you're a gun owner, then you better darn well be responsible with it. I know we are uh, winding around to the uh, end of the the show here. Um, You you had a couple of other items. I I just wanna give you a chance to bring them in. You suggest creating offices of gun violence prevention, and you also suggest providing facilities where people in crisis can temporarily store their firearms. Anything you wanna bring up about those policy prescriptions.
1: Yes. So Offices of Violence Prevention are essentially the places where all the things we're talking about can come together, where they can coalesce and you can have real accountability. You can have, you know, they can collect data. They can work with the school boards. They hire and fund, they hire CVI workers who will go out there and do community violence intervention or at least fund those programs. They also work with 911 to do alternative 911 response, right? So that when there are mental health crises, instead of sending a police officer there, you can send a licensed medical professional to address the issue. Those offices provide an opportunity for everyone to have a voice besides law enforcement in keeping your community safe. They are not against law enforcement, but in fact, as we pointed out in the article, in Houston and in Austin, they work directly with law enforcement to make sure that our communities are safe. They look at gun violence and violence in the community generally as a public health problem and address it with real public health solutions. One of those solutions, as you alluded to, is providing a place where people in crisis can store their weapons. This is very novel. You know, voluntary turnover of weapons for most people is uh, just something alien to them, right, to gun owners, to turn over something that is so valuable to them, but They are an opportunity where an Office of Violence Prevention can create a facility, again, working with the police, where guns can be safely stored away from individuals going through crisis so they can get the treatment that they need.
0: In the minute or so that we have left, I wanted to bring this full circle to a conversation you and I were having off the air before we started the show. You were mentioning that we actually did see a little change based on politics back in 2018 in Florida. What, what was that change? What, what, did, what happened there?
1: So in 2018, I was working as the district director for Congressman Darren Soto uh, based out of Orlando. And on February 14th, the Parkland shooting occurred. Um, as we know, 17 teenagers died. During that time, that was during the middle of Florida's legislative session, which in that year was just January to March. There were about three weeks left before legislative session ended. Rick Scott was the governor and Richard Corcoran was the speaker of the house. Tens of thousands of kids marched in Tallahassee within a week. Parents, everybody demanding action. Rick Scott was at the time running for Senate against Bill Nelson. And the Speaker of the House, Richard Corcoran, was running for governor. They knew their campaigns were done, done if they did nothing. They were hearing it from both sides. Ultimately, they passed a bill um, that created Florida's Extreme Risk Protection Order, or ERPO Act, also known as Red Flag Laws that allow family members to petition to call the police and petition the court to have guns removed from people who are in crisis, who are posing a threat to themselves or others. So far, hundreds of lives have been saved because hundreds of ERPOs have been implemented and used all over the state of Florida in that time. That political moment, and to this day, by the way, that is the only Republican state that has passed Republican-controlled legislature and governor that has passed an ERPO. The political headwinds were there. They had to act, and gun violence prevention advocates took advantage of that opportunity. We are now in a situation where, and then ultimately, by the way, Rick Scott ended up winning his Senate election by less than 1%. Corcoran lost his primary to DeSantis, but became DeSantis' the Secretary of Education. We have to recognize that there are these small, brief windows of political opportunity and push for life saving um, policy when we have those chances, when we have those opportunities. Right now, we have another one across the country in Texas. There's an election in six months, and it's a real opportunity for Texas government to either step up and protect their people or continue the status quo.
0: And that's where I wanted to leave things for everyone, because what you just said about Texas and the situation in Florida is true everywhere throughout the country. This is another horrifying tragedy that I'm still trying to process, like many of us are. But what your story tells me is that there are hundreds of people alive today because regular people took action and they recognized that change can happen on the state and local level, even if the federal government won't act. So I hope that that becomes true once again in this situation. And Alex, I wanna thank you for being with us today.
1: No, thank you for having me. And thank you for um, you know, highlighting this very, very important issue.